Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the WAM Podcast. It's an honor to be your host, where I get to introduce listeners to inspiring women who are making a real difference. With our podcast, you'll get to hear inspirational stories, both personal and professional challenges our guests have overcome, how their backgrounds help to shape who they are, and how they empower others, giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. Joining me today, I'm very excited to have Aidan Madigan Curtis, who is a general partner at Eclipse Ventures, a top VC dedicated to improving U.S. infrastructure by investing in startups that promise a positive impact on the economy and the environment. Aiden is part of the the leadership team. In fact, she just started there and is presently responsible for over $2 billion in assets under management. They have 70 companies in their portfolio and a team of investors that have deep expertise in technology, manufacturing, supply chain, logistics, healthcare, and consumer products. That's quite the list. So Aiden is now part of that team, and we're going to get to hear her experience and just hear her wonderful story. So Aiden, thank you. Thank you. Let's dive right in. (laughs) Sounds great, Linda. Thank you for the kind introduction. And you have such an interesting background. I mean, not many people can say that they were were brought up in an area where brown bears were regular house guests, <laughs> but <laughs> but you were brought up in the Canadian Rockies. What, maybe you could just tell our listeners just more about you, about your background, and some of your early influencers. Sure, happy to. And yes, no, b- brown bears definitely were a feature uh, not too infrequently on my lawn. Growing up, I grew up kind of on the side of a mountain, actually, in British Columbia, Canada. And, you know, like to kind of laugh about being a frontiers woman, uh, not just because I like flannel t-shirts, but because of that sort of upbringing and, and the ruggedness of the whole experience. But yeah, I think, you know, going all the way back, I grew up with just my mom, who was a huge, huge influence in my life. I think it's really important for people to have strong role models growing up, and I couldn't have asked for a better one a really inspiring, powerful woman who definitely had very high standards for her daughter and pushed me. She was a she was a loving mom. She was a tough mom, <laughs> but she definitely helped me believe in myself. Yeah, I guess, you know, some funny anecdotes about being a kid, not just the sort of Canadian wilderness part, but did a lot of musical theater growing up, played a lot of sports like rugby, so had a good mix of being goofy on stage and entertaining people and also, um, you know, being on teams that were you know, playing tough games and hoping to win. So I feel like those themes have been um, present in my life, you know, working hard and not being afraid to literally get dirty. <laughs> and yeah, I guess happy to kind of talk about what happened after Canada, but I'll pause here and, and see what other questions you have. Yeah, it's interesting. And you've shared with me that your personal mantra has always been embracing the feeling of of deep into the unknown. And, you know, and certainly your background, that nice mix of musician as well as athlete helps with that. But maybe tell us a little bit more about the the core values that were instilled in you as a child? I mean, besides work ethic, which as I've come to know you, there are not many people that are, that can compete on that front. (laughs) Thanks, Linda. And uh, describing my mantra as into the unknown, I just mentioned my musical theater background. So you're lucky you didn't get me breaking out into Disney song here, into the unknown. It's one of my (laughs) favorites. But uh, yeah, from a values perspective, appreciate your comments on my work ethic. I think that you know, at the end of the day, I was really lucky, you know, blessed in a lot of respects to have parents who were able to kind of help me get a great education, public education in Canada that was that was free and 
accessible to me, even though we didn't have a ton growing up. And so I think just this notion of doing the absolute best with what you have. And I also think, I don't exactly remember when, but I, you know, I do remember walking down the street at different points when I was a kid with my mom and her pointing out people's situations to me, whether it was folks we were riding on the bus with or the people that we saw at the store. She was always building in me this notion of, you know, how is this other person feeling and what are they thinking and playing out for me the impact that I, you know, when interacting with people was was having on them and looking at the dynamics between others. And I think just made me really aware of the world and of interpersonal dynamics and of how we all affect each other. And so I think that that kind of undertone really stuck with me growing up and definitely led to a lot of the decisions I made, both in college in terms of activities that I did and even sort of what was driving me when I was first heading off to school, thinking about, you know, doing a career initially in in economic development and, and human rights, trying to think about, you know, how to make the world a place that was fair for everybody. Absolutely. And the word that comes to mind to me is compassion. You can't really teach a kid to be compassionate, but you can certainly, as your mom did, foster it or help nurture it, you know, when it's already there. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think compassion uh, definitely is a big piece of it. And also just awareness. It's one thing to have those feelings about what others might be going through. And another just to also think through, you know, in, in a logical way, if it bothers you, if it doesn't seem fair, if it doesn't seem right, like what can actually be done to change it or to help with it? And so uh, that sort of logical framework, uh, my mom's a very uh, logical woman. She's a, a lawyer by training. And so definitely taught me to think through kind of the infrastructure behind things as well. And I think that's kind of what led originally to to studying not only, you know, how to have an impact for people, but also what could tangibly get us there. And that's kind of really set me, what set me off on the course of, you know, thinking about economic development when I was in college and and actually kind of heading into a career in my earliest days in global macro, you know, really realizing that I didn't necessarily have using only that college degree, the kind of training that could help me be really actually useful uh, in the world of economic development. I sort of thought I could maybe do a good job landing in a, in a crazy country and trying to help, you know, actually deploy policies on the ground. But in terms of actually thinking through what policies should be and how to structure them, I just became really aware as I went through my schooling and I got the chance to see, you know, countries like China through some nonprofit work I was doing up front and actually see some of the sort of dissonance between policy and the lives that people lived on the ground, you know, I just became really aware that I probably needed a deeper, maybe even like a private market education on how things really worked. And by private market, I don't mean private school. I mean, like, go work at a, at a company that actually, you know, has to live or die by the value it creates. And uh, that's why I ended up kind of choosing after college to go to Bridgewater. I felt like of all the people in the world that were together thinking about how things really worked, they were some of the most creative. And uh, while I was there, actually became best in the world at, at thinking about those global macroeconomic themes. And so really got an amazing sense of, of how things really worked by, by sitting on that investment team. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and also, we should mention that you were the first in your family to get an Ivy League education, correct? Yeah, I was. I think, you know, I'm I'm lucky that both my parents definitely got the chance to get degrees, but that was up in Canada and it was a bit of a a bit of a surprise when a guidance counselor of mine suggested that I potentially pick up an SAT test and and give that a try and even think about going to school 
kind of beyond our borders, that wasn't necessarily something I was I was thinking about because it was really not part of the plan and not part of anybody's plan, at least in my context, not only from my family, but, you know, even in my in my town, sort of not really a, a thing people did uh, necessarily to kind of go to the States and certainly to a place like like Harvard. And look, that certainly took, a, you know, a degree of courage, you know, kind of uprooting yourself and moving to the States. And and not only did you get your undergrad at Harvard, but you also got an MBA from Stanford. So you went from one end of the country to the other. <laughs> yeah, well, um, there was a little stint in between at that Global Macro Fund, as I mentioned. But I think what happened there really was I was loving the opportunity to sit really at the helm of this amazing institution that was actively thinking about how markets work and the kind of trades that needed to be put on to keep people safe during the financial crisis, which I lived through at Bridgewater, amazing front row seat to what was going on in the economy globally and, and domestically at the time. It was a really uncertain time, but just a phenomenal education, exactly what I was looking for and also a great group of people to work with. Very honest, very direct, certainly a unique culture out there at Bridgewater, but a group of people I really grew to to love and appreciate deeply and who I'm very, very close with still today. But I think what ended up happening and the reason I took a trip over to Stanford and stayed on the West Coast was I realized that it was going to probably be another 20 years um, in finance before I really felt like I could potentially take a position that actually was able to have some influence and, and credibility at, at an NGO, um, something like the IMF or the World Bank. And in the meantime, I was watching all of the classmates of mine from undergrad who had gone out to the West Coast and who'd banded together with other like-minded people and in their garages started creating things, things that actually had value, things like Facebook. <laughs> like literally, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was in the class ahead of me. And, you know, it's when, when people are, you know, in your context and then going and legitimately changing the world like that, I kind of just really questioned what I was doing and whether or not I was on the right path to having impact, especially since there's so much inside me that does love to build. And I knew I was, you mentioned my, my work ethic. I mean, I love working. I'm also just super high energy. And I knew I had a lot of energy to deploy. And I wanted to create stuff. So I was really, you know, thankful to get the chance to go to Stanford. It was sort of my my Trojan horse into Silicon Valley in a lot of ways and kind of came over here and got the chance to meet some amazing people in my class and then was also taking classes in CS and some electrical engineering stuff <laughs> kind of in and around the standard MBA. Just for fun. Just for fun. <laughs> I mean, it definitely yeah. kicked my butt. I'll tell you that. But uh, good thing I had the sort of economics training. At least there was a, a quantitative streak there. But yeah, definitely time consuming. And yeah, I think all of that kind of came together to a job offer from Apple, which was really, I gotta be honest, kind of them. I think they, I think they saw someone who was hardworking and adventurous. And we talked a lot in my interviews uh, for Apple about how, um, well, two kind of two key things. One was more about me, and one was more about how I thought. The part about me was that I spent a bunch of time in China in undergrad working with a nonprofit organization called China Care. And my job there really was to get things done, you know, for the children that we were working with. And that involved everything from picking up Chinese to figuring out how to shuttle babies around the country and work with medical institutions there. And they just sort of, uh, you know, in my interviews, this kind of came out in Apple was like, here's somebody who, who can get things done, you know, who can get things done in really hard, non-traditional contexts, which was a lot of what they were doing. You know, it takes 
a lot of creativity and uh, a little bit of magic to bring up manufacturing lines from zero to millions in in a matter of months. And I think they thought, I think they they saw that spark in me. So they grabbed me for that purpose. I think, you know, I also walked in saying I really believed in hardware and I really believed in, you know, how limited it seemed like we were living in a world back in, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, that was very confined digitally to just a couple of physical form factors. You know, we got to access our digital lives through laptops and we got to access our digital lives then through smartphones. And everyone had seen kind of such a huge impact that smartphones had made. But there were these sort of like rectangular prisms that dictated our our digital our digital interactions. And what I really believed in at the time was that those barriers were going to be rapidly broken down. And if software had eaten the world for the decade prior, you know, that the coming decade was was hardware's, you know, chance at, at biting the apple. And I was excited about themes like wearables and IoT and AR, VR, these notions of kind of new hardware innovations and infrastructure innovations with cellular and, you know, sort of what you could do with smaller and smaller silicon that were making the digital and physical divides less and less. And so I got excited about working for Apple because I thought I could really learn from a world-class group of people how to make exceptional hardware and how to build it and how to bring it to market. Right. And and you did. I mean, you you worked on the first Apple Watch. And I'm curious, you described being at Apple as the school of hard knocks. What made it that? You know, I think I arrived knowing very little about consumer electronics. I mean, I'd enjoyed them uh, throughout my life. But how, you know, I think a lot of people start at Apple and they tell a very similar story, I know, because I heard it when interviewing a lot of people after once I was working there that, you know, folks have been putting together computers, you know, from the time that they were children. And I thought that 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 sounded lucky and great, but that wasn't my experience. As I mentioned, sort of a little bit of a different upbringing up just, just a of the mountain in just Canada. A <laughs> to a single mom, you know, she wasn't exactly like, hey, let's take a the poster. <laughs> so I really had to cut my teeth on how manufacturing and how electronics worked. And I think I'd spend, you know, I spent a solid, you know, 10 to 12 hours of my day on the manufacturing floor for the years that I was there, was constantly back and forth um, overseas and kind of domestically where Apple was manufacturing. And um, and when I wasn't actually on the manufacturing floor or working with some of our large equipment providers to negotiate really tough deals for all the equipment that we needed to bring in and measuring yields and stuff like that on the floor, I was studying how the heck all this stuff worked because I needed I needed to know how we were going to be fooled. And I needed to know, you know, what I was going to miss, honestly, when the company was relying on me to be part of a team of people that were bringing up products that people rely on every day. Yeah, so that's that's probably the school of hard knocks aspect of it. I was lucky enough, and I'll, I'll add this, that Apple's a tough environment. Everybody works incredibly hard, and it's incredibly fast paced. But I found myself working with you know hugely kind people who loved the kind of intrepid qualities I was demonstrating, and never never shied away from answering my millions of questions and and being kind of a super open book to me about how things work. So it was a great it was a great experience, albeit a tough one. So you went from Apple to. There's this theme. So you go from an economic background to an operations background and then to technology. You want to talk a little bit about Samsara? Cause, and, and you just recently had like your last day there. And you're, I know you're starting on a whole new chapter, which we're excited to hear about. But tell us some of the highlights from Samsara. 
Sure. And it's been almost six years now at Samsara, so definitely an interesting journey to talk about. But, you know, I describe myself really pushing towards these frontiers. You know, obviously growing up, they were like physical frontiers, kind of a mountain range. And and then it was adventuring new places, you know, in economic development, like China, places I'd never been before. And obviously moving to countries I'd never been before, like the U.S. for me to, to live and to pursue my dreams. And then coming out to Silicon Valley and trying to, you know, start again, really, as, as a person who could quickly come up the curve in technology and, and started in manufacturing as a way to, to do that, where I felt like it was a real mix of real world operating experience that was valued, as well as uh, kind of lacing in these key themes about incredibly cutting edge ways of both manufacturing and building the devices that connect our physical and digital lives. When I think about these notions of like frontiers and digital physical convergence, like I think Samsara just really is sort of the the key point of tendency of all of those things. <laughs> I will describe my experience as Apple as, as a tough one, as an amazing one, but also as one where, you know, it was, it was great to live at a big company like that, but also I felt like there's so many talented people there and I really have so much energy to to give. I wanted to be kind of in a startup environment where I knew that that I was going to be kind of first, last, and only line of defense, that the the amount of calories I was just funneling into this business every day were unique and important and really mission critical to to actually making whatever the dream was that that company and that group of people had a reality. And that's really what I found at Samsara. I found this group of, of really like-minded founders who had previously sold another company that they built uh, in the wireless networking space to Cisco. And We'd kind of set off on this journey to to work in what I would describe as like the real economy industries like manufacturing, logistics, warehousing, wholesale trade, and healthcare. They were thinking hard about what some of these key technology themes and advances we'd seen in the last decade and decade and a half meant for how we could better kind of the safety and sustainability and operational efficiency in those sectors. Because so much was still being done by paper and pen, and you know, there's so much really to kind of be built there from a technical perspective. And they, they had set out to essentially build like a connected operations platform. So that means a lot of things. And in their in their mind, it was being able to work first in transportation. There are so many people every day on the roads bringing goods back and forth throughout different places in the country, touching really critical pieces like cold chain temperature monitoring. And, you know, we've seen recently key themes in, in cold chain that relate to vaccine delivery. And we know kind of how important this is, but our food is also delivered that way. And, <laughs> all, you know, it's been, it's, it's not new that we've needed to move goods around the country and around the world. And they'd, um, so the Samsara team had focused first on essentially providing sensors for transportation to be able to paint the picture for operating managers there about what was happening to their fleets every day, the fuel consumed, where they were on a map, and do a series of um, reporting, both for even things like hours of service, because obviously driving too long on the road can be incredibly dangerous. So I just kind of streamlining all of this reporting in a much more seamless, real-time and immediate way. And it's actually made a, a massive impact for so many companies, over 20,000 companies that are on Samsara's platform at this point. So it didn't start like that. It started you know, with a bunch of us in a garage thinking about, well, really iterating actually on a couple of different key themes in these industrial spaces. And we settled on, on this telematics field to start. And the company grew really fast because we ended up really providing a lot of value to our customers. 
Now you went from Sansara now to let's talk about Eclipse and where your next chapter is, because now you're coming to the investment part of the process and yet still working in these old line industries, such as manufacturing. Tell us a little bit more about what what attracted you to this and where do you see yourself going now? Yeah. You know, what's really interesting about, about venture and a place like Eclipse, you know, venture in a lot of ways is, it's not necessarily like, like global macroeconomic investing, right? What I was doing at Bridgewater was, you know, the world happened and we were analyzing it and we were trying to decide how, how to kind of allocate funds as a function of what we saw happening. But it was not passive. It's, it's an active investment strategy, but you don't actually necessarily affect the outcome of the entities of the companies you invest in. You just try and decide who the winners and who the losers will be, right? And then make good decisions and return, you know, return well for your LPs. So kind of like you're on the outside looking in. Yeah, looking in, exactly. And trying to make smart decisions about how things will play out, but not affecting the outcome. Venture is different. You know, venture is premised upon the notion that you're a partner to the people building these companies and you are driving with them in a lot of ways the outcome. And obviously, it's up to the entrepreneur to have the great idea, to have the authenticity and the background to grow the idea that they've had and the impact that they want to have. But as a venture investor, you know, you're being chosen by these entrepreneurs, really, these days, entrepreneurs, the great ones have, you know, choice between investors that they want to work with. And so they'll choose you if they feel like you can add value and drive higher growth, better outcome for the company and its customers. And they'll choose you for the advice they hope you can give. They'll choose you for the contacts that you have in the industry or connections to customers. They'll choose you if they believe you can really add value to what they're doing. And you choose them too. And so it's a real partnership and you actually are very involved in how the companies grow and evolve over time. That is really what attracted me to venture investing. It was this marriage, you know, between the world of of thinking like an investor and delivering, you know, incredibly high returns for your LPs, but also the chance to still keep more of a hands-on experience with companies and helping to kind of drive growth and great outcomes. Right. And, and more responsibility, which, which obviously you thrive on. Yeah, I think to be able to have seen, you know, a world-class company like Apple and how it operates and how it drives manufacturing and works globally, you know, and, and kind of has created one of the most fascinating supply chains in the world. And then as well with a company like Samsara, you know, working in product development and essentially kind of building a company from scratch with this team of seasoned entrepreneurs to get to not only watch that firsthand, but also participate in driving that growth and building whole departments and, you know, kind of managing those teams. I just feel like having seen this a couple of times in a row, I want to take those lessons, the times and the areas and the ways in which I've skinned my knees over the last decade. And also the really clever things I've picked up along the way, mistakes I wouldn't make again and things I would do again. And just be be a partner to those entrepreneurs and be here when they want the advice. Also know when they when they don't need it, how to how to do other things to add value and really just to help them kind of create whatever outcome they're looking to create. Yeah. And I, I like that you said that, taking the le- different lessons, which leads me to a, a question, which is what's the best advice that you ever got or what's the best advice that maybe you didn't take and how did it change you? 
I think the best advice I got was, hey, hey, girl, you should take some SATs. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the second best advice, because uh, that I think that's a pretty standard piece of advice to everybody in the US anyway. The second best piece of advice was probably, you know, and actually, I love how this one came up, because I had the sort of awesome experience of of doing one of those kind of women leadership panels at Samsara recently, uh, just a phenomenal group of women who helped build the company, talking to the rest of the women at Samsara. And this was actually a piece of advice that was given by one of my coworkers. And she was just sharing openly about how frequently and how often she found herself second guessing things that she'd done and that she'd said. She was just sort of being vulnerable with us and saying that, you know, at some point she started counting actually the number of times in the day where she replayed, you know, a conversation in her head or rethought the thing that she just said or questioned something that she'd been a part of. And as I listened to her describe this story and describe this experience, it resonated so deeply with with experiences that I'd had. And, you know, in some ways I always had thought it a value of mine, right? That I'm a, a thoughtful person, that I reflect on my actions and what I've said. But I realized in listening to her story that it can also be, it can also hold you back. You know, it can, it can be, it's great to be self-reflective at the right time and place. But I think the thing that she really taught me that day was, you know, when something is, is said, it's said, and when it's done, it's done. And there's no use kind of dwelling on things, just, you know, keep on keeping on. And, and she was totally right, because I feel like when I reflect on most of life, you know, it's not like, there aren't uh, two dozen times a day where I'm like, ooh, was that the right call? Was that the right decision to make? Did I position that the right way? But at the end of the day, I think it's always been something we've been able to recover from, even if it wasn't the best decision. It's like, it's actually about looking forward, not looking backwards. And for me, that's been a big one. And I, I know it's sort of more open thing to say, but after a having that conversation, I just feel like a huge weight has been lifted off my shoulders. And I'm able to just, you know, focus on the forward and not think so much about what just happened or what was said. That is wonderful advice. And that's, you know, it reminds me of an expression. uh, My mother used to always tell me, it's okay to look back, just don't stare. (laughs) That's a great one. I think that captures it well. (laughs) So of the people that you've met over the years, who's inspired you the most? That's such a great question. I think I mentioned this person early on, but my mom is definitely my biggest inspiration. I just think that she really sacrificed for me so that I could really have opportunity and kind of chase down those frontiers I mentioned pretty fearlessly in my life. And she demonstrated to me so many times just kind of how much she loved me and and also what it meant to be hardworking and what it meant to really care about to really care about your family. So she's an inspiration to me in every respect. She, you know, I remember she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was about 12 years old. And, you know, being on just her income, it was an incredibly terrifying time for us. She had to go on disability and watching her as a single parent, you know, navigate that while not being able to feel half of her body, frankly, just taught me that, the strength is really in you and um, you can't get it from anywhere else. And your family are the people that you can rely on. And you just kind of got to hug each other and go heads down and find yeah, your own strength. So I think that that's really carried me forward at so many times when I've 
as I mentioned, you know, questioned myself or I found myself in really tough situations that I didn't know <laughs> how I was possibly going to get out of to sort of channel her in those tough moments and think if she could do that, you know, this is nothing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. She she really understood what the challenges were. Wow. That's amazing. And, and I'm sure your family is incredibly proud of you, you know, and all the, uh, the achievements that you've had, just as I'm sure you're, you're proud of them as well. <laughs> I'm so proud of them. And she still sends me lots of feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you want it or not. <laughs> she's always been, if anything, she's always been very accepting of me, high standards, but encouraging of my adventurous nature, even if she doesn't want me to call her sometimes to make sure I'm, I'm not disappeared somewhere. And um, just really accepting of, of me and, and who I am. Right. We should all be like that. Yeah. And I, and I wish we had, and unfortunately we're coming to that 30 minutes goes by so quickly and it's just been such a, a pleasure, you know, hearing your story and, and just your achievements. And I wish you, you know, all the best. And, and we're, we're going to definitely be checking back and hearing how things are going with the clips and, and just in your life in general. One thing I do like to add just on a lighter note, just for fun, I do ask all of our guests, if you had one superpower, what would that be? I've been thinking about this one. So I think at this point, given how many of our entrepreneurs and how many of the industries that we're working with at Eclipse aren't, you know, seated traditionally in Silicon Valley or New York or these major metros, they're in Oklahoma City and they're out in Little Rock, Arkansas. And there were real things happen and uh, where the real economy kind of gets created. So I, I'm going to go ahead and say I wish I could fly because it would probably be a more fun experience popping back and forth and, and getting the chance to kind of really dig in and be side by side with those entrepreneurs and with the customers they serve. Oh, I love that. I love that. Absolutely. You know what? I'll, I'll join you on that. <laughs> you always get interesting ones when you ask people about the uh, the superpowers. Aiden, thank you. And we are, uh, unfortunately, we're at the end of the show, but thank you so much for sharing your personal and professional journey. And for more information about Eclipse, where should people go? they should go to eclipse.vc and I'd love to hear from them. Excellent. And uh, if they want to reach out to you, they can uh, find you on LinkedIn, correct? Absolutely. All right. Terrific. Again, thank you. And thanks to everybody out there listening. Stay tuned for more great stories with Empowering Women. Thanks, Linda. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.